Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Bonsai Wire podcast. I'm your host, Jonas Dupuy, along with... Andrew Robson. And today we're going to talk about show prep. Andrew, why might we want to prepare our trees for show? Why can't I just pull it off the bench and drop it in an exhibit? You know, Jonas, our, our bonsai on our bench are probably a little dirty. <laughs> the, the, the pot might have a few scuff marks on it. Um, it might not have the detail wiring that we want to see in a show. It's just not the elevated form of, of the bonsai that we really want to see and show off. Is this like when we have to clean our house before guests come over? Exactly. We want to just, you know, put the finishing touches, the icing on top of the cake. Where might we want to start with this? You know, we're going to give you seven concrete things that you can do to prepare your tree for an exhibit. Uh, and Jonas, number one, let's let's talk about our first thing, and that's cleaning deadwood. That's where I often start because it's one of the messiest jobs on my list, and I usually want to make a big mess earlier rather than clean everything else out and then make a big mess. So what does it look like to clean deadwood? If you have a conifer or a deciduous tree with deadwood, that wood, through repeated waterings, might have some algae on it. It might have some mold or fungus or all kinds of funny things growing in there. And so my first line of defense is a water spray bottle and a toothbrush. And I will use that toothbrush to scrape off whatever algae or other or dirt or other decayed wood there is. And then I can then treat it with whatever my standard treatment is. And the nice thing about cleaning deadwood, and we don't just have this on conifers, you know, you might have this on an ume, a flowering quince, you might have it on a few yamadori deciduous as well. The nice thing about cleaning deadwood is we don't have to do this the day before the show, and you probably shouldn't do it the day before That's the right. show. You can do this a week, two, three ahead of time to, to kind of get it going so we can focus on the other six things that are going to be on our list. Yeah, it's funny. I actually plan deadwood treatments months to more than a year in advance because for those of you who haven't done a lot of deadwood carving the first time you carve deadwood the treatment something like lime sulfur just does not soak in and so creating the deadwood feature letting it dry out applying something brushing it off letting it start to wear down and then applying it it's only through several subsequent applications that you're really able to get the great color that you're looking for yeah, and the nice thing about showing trees is we tend to show trees that have gone through that process quite a while. So when we're cleaning the deadwood, uh, it's already established deadwood typically. We don't have to apply as much lime sulfur. We can dilute it a little bit. Rather than maybe 100% or 50-50, we can do something more like one part lime sulfur to five parts water or something like that. And depending on how bright you want it to be, you can do any different, any one of a number different of dilutions that will get you the color that you're looking for. How can you test it out? Just give it a try. It's actually really easy to remove the lime sulfur. You just brush it off and reapply it. Yeah, so that leads us to number two on our list of things that you can do to prep your tree for an exhibition. And that's not just cleaning the deadwood, but cleaning the trunk and the branching. If there's any type of moss or lichens, well, maybe not lichens. Sometimes we like lichens growing on our, our plants. But if we do have any grime or anything growing on the actual you know, bark of the tree itself, it's a good time to take care of that ahead of time. I actually had kind of a fungus that was growing on one of my trees last fall that I was thinking of showing, and it just wasn't an option in the current state. It was all these little tiny black dots all over it, and that was just not going to work. And so I had to spray and then brush off every last bit of that. And that's where our, our handy toothbrush from number one comes in. Holy because, smoke, that's great. Yeah, the toothbrush is a real powerful tool for doing a lot of things in bonsai, but especially for prepping for an exhibit. And this will sound really funny, but if you can't get to something with a toothbrush, uh, two things you can use, a uh, water jet, some of the spot guns for cleaning fabric, or they make that's some right. spot guns just for bonsai, 
and uh, one that I've only seen used once ever, and that was when we were prepping shows for uh, Taikon 10 in Japan, an electric toothbrush. Oh, wow. Tell me more. Root over rock trident maple with such dense branching, no grown-up hands would fit between those branches, and there was no room to move a brush. And this uh, guy got in there with one of those rotating heads. So it barely fits in, and then you just got to press a button. Yes, it was like an Oral-B, and this was a smallish tree. It was a medium tree, maybe not even 12 inches high, but it probably had 75 branches that were all covered with algae because the leaves had been growing on it. And this guy, just with a smile on his face, just sat there brushing away, spray, 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 and just for an hour or two hours three hours just cleaned it all up and it looked fantastic yeah you know and we talked about trunk and branches but really we should talk about surface roots too because so many times if we have moss growing on the soil surface of the pot it's very common for that moss to hide our nabari which is what we want to show off especially if it covers it up it grows up into the trunk if you have flaky bark it can start growing into the bark exactly yes there's all kinds of good reasons to uh keep that lower trunk the Nabari, the Tachiagari, any of those fancy things. Keep them clean and looking good for the show. Yeah, and speaking of... But that, I was going to say, what it doesn't mean is do not use a pick and pull out every speck of mud between those surface roots because you actually want to keep some of that gunk in there because over time roots can develop. And uh, if you clean everything out, you'll have a bunch of bare exposed roots that'll never add any additional roots. And so that's right. the trick is knowing how do you reduce the moss and or dirt kind of from the top down until you get to the appropriate soil level and then you've revealed those surface roots while maintaining a little bit of gunk in between. Yeah, that's right. And I've that, made that mistake countless times, which is why I'm quick to remind others not to make that mistake. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it leads us to our, our next topic, number three on our list of things that you can do to prep your tree for an exhibit. And it's standard deciduous prep. Now, how would you prep a deciduous tree for exhibit when it's in leaf? When it's in leaf, you know, if if... First of all, I don't like showing deciduous trees in leaf, but sometimes, you know, we have a spring show. Sometimes we have a summer we show. We need shows all year round. Two shows a year are not enough. It's and not so enough. A lot of clubs have fantastic shows where we can see flowers and fruit and all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. The first thing that I do is I go around and I remove any leaves that have uh, damage. If you got hail that yep. year and you have black spots, uh, if there was an insect biting on it, remove anything that has a defect. Uh, and that by doing that first, you're actually thinning out the tree a little bit, which might potentially help you see the structure a little bit more when you're showing it at that non-ideal time. I don't know when this happened, but I have very concrete memories. Maybe it's some trauma coming back, but I actually remember thinning deciduous trees out for a mid-season show and trying to get the foliar density even on a good-sized deciduous tree can be a lot of work. I would not do that on a Chinese elm or something with tiny leaves, but something like a maple can be very rewarding to remove the leaves that growing downward coming out of the bottom of a branch or um, just thinning out dense areas so when you have that equal density top to bottom you see the shape of the tree rather than lumpy foliage here and there yeah that's right and it's also you're almost doing a partial defoliation on the tree to be able to appreciate it which is going to help the the tree as well now in your fall and winter shows how do you prepare the uh, deciduous trees when there are no leaves around when there's no leaves, you know, if, if you have, let's say the leaves are just barely dropping, you want to show the tree in silhouette, um, you might have to remove some leaves. You might have to defoliate the tree if it's later in the year. Uh, and by doing that, it's, it's you know, if we just defoliate a tree in our garden, we just cut the petiole and put it back on the bench. But we don't want to see those petioles sticking yeah, so out. so what do you do? So you might have to cut the, you can either, you, you have a couple options. You could do it a week or two before the show, and hopefully those petioles fall off. Or if you do it a week or two 
before the show and those petioles don't fall off, they should be a lot more removable. You're, you'll right. be able to, to, you know, take your fingers, you know, scrape them off and they, it won't damage. The, and they'll be more tweezer if you can't get to it. Yeah, that's right. What else do you do with the branches on deciduous trees? Yeah, you know, typically I, I like showing deciduous trees without wire of any kind. And so um, I don't do any detail wiring on deciduous trees. I, I, I like to do all of that work ahead of time. In other um, words, aka, please don't wire your deciduous trees for winter shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we want to see <laughs> the branches. Unless you're making a point. Yeah. I don't know what that point would be, but... Yeah, we, yeah, we, we want to see the branches, not the wire. And, right. you know, the conifers get to hide the wire, and that's not, not a luxury that we have with deciduous. What kind of pruning do you do on deciduous trees when they're bare ahead of a show? You know, if, if it has any runners, you might prune it back to silhouette. Prune it that's back to where one. it looks pretty. Dead branches? Dead branches, which is... Uh, this uh, one right here. This one right here. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, remove any dead branches on the the plant. Um, typically, especially on a very refined deciduous uh, bonsai, yeah. uh, it's it's very common to get two, three, four, five percent twig loss every year. That's mm-hmm. just something that happens on an old refined tree. Uh, and so, removing those few twigs that didn't make it, maybe they got shaded out in the interior or whatnot. Removing those so that we don't see any dead branches is really key. I've heard a lot of people say. You can't tell if they're dead when they're bare. And I've heard very, very prominent teachers recommending keeping those to maintain that density. You can, if, if, if you look closely, which, which I encourage everybody to do in a show, you can definitely tell that they're dead. You can tell that the bud is not there or it's, it's a different color. Um, one of my f- trees that's going to the Portland uh, or the Pacific Bonsai Expo this year is a Coralopsis, which has a big, huge uh, bud, huge prominent bud, bud, big prominent bud. Stewartia is another one Obvious that has a color. big bud. Oh, Stewartia, you can't uh, fake that. And so if you have any dead branches, it just detracts from all the hard work that you put into the tree over the, over the years. That's right. And so it's surprising, even when there are no leaves, there's a lot to do. I know when showing something like a Japanese beach or European beach, just removing the bracts that can hang out afterwards because the leaves don't fall. So you have to usually pluck all the leaves off with a tweezer. And then even the bracts at the base of the buds will sometimes hang around quite tenaciously. And they're tiny. You either need to get your fingers on them and or a tweezer. And that's, that's meticulous work. It is. And uh, the the thing that that really leads to and speaks to is that with show prep, don't do it the day before. Don't do it oh, the day. No. Uh, do, do this work a week ahead of time so that you don't have to rush at the last minute. And you know, it's funny when you mentioned the uh, when spraying that deciduous tree that I sprayed, I've had that same problem with a uh, Korean hornbeam actually that had very rough bark, that mm. kind of almost wart-like bark brushing wouldn't really get rid of the fungus. And it's like, and I didn't even notice at first because the bark was so crenellated on a deciduous tree, you don't expect it. But we were looking, it's like, wait a minute, that's darker than it should be. And so we actually pulled out a spot gun, held it a little further away, and we blasted off that fungus in there with water because it wouldn't brush away. And like, I've only dealt with that a couple times ever, but I checked... It's a powerful tool when you have to use it. Yeah, I and I look for that all the time now when it... <laughs> growths that you don't want can just show up and you got to kind of get used to looking out for them. You know, going back to cleaning deadwood, we tip uh, on most deciduous trees. We don't have a lot of deadwood, but, um, a common practice, especially in Japan, is to lime sulfur the, the the trunk and the branches of deciduous trees. And so preparing it for a winter show, you might, uh, do that process. You, how that works is you you cover the pot with you know I, I take a garbage bag, cut a cut a line in it, wrap it around the pot, 
Um, put it up pretty close to the trunk, cover the nabari. We don't want the lime sulfur dripping into the soil. Um, you take a very diluted amount of lime sulfur, anywhere from one part lime sulfur to 25 parts water, up to 32 parts water, somewhere in that range. Uh, so quite diluted. Uh, you spray the, the, the trunk, the branches. Uh, you, you let that uh, absorb. And then you take the bag off and you can use a paintbrush to paint the nabari. Uh, it, it gives the tree a little bit more of a sense of age. Um, if you look at the Kokofu books, you, you tend to see they they have done this for years and years and years. So it evens out the age on the the trunk and kind of blends that into the branches, which might be younger. And that's a pretty common practice. We don't see that done in North America too much, but it's very common in Japan. Is it very common for shows or very common as a dormant spray? Because I know in general for dormant sprays, people put it on extremely strong. They paint the trunks one to 10 yeah. on deciduous. And that's very common for destroying insect eggs and various fungal pathogens. Yeah, I, I typically lose, use a lower amount because I don't want it to have that bleached white. But well, I that's think that's the difference between show prep and or just winter care. Right, right. Um, but but I think it has a, a pretty strong. It effect. changes the bud color too. It can, and so um, you you do want to be careful, which is why I like a, a more diluted amount. Um, but it's a it's a it's a fun thing to try if you haven't done it. So in other words, makeup is okay for bonsai. It's okay. Yep. It's okay for people it's funny we've decided. Where we draw the line, what's what's artificial and what isn't. So it's okay to use whitening yeah, on a, uh, a tree on in trunks. a pot by definition is artificial. So I think we have a little bit of leeway to, to play. And so would you do it on a trident maple? You can you do it on species that have a naturally white bark typically. So yes, you do it on a beech, you can do it on a trident. Um, Japanese maple for sure. Things that I would avoid would maybe be a stewardia, which have that beautiful <laughs> cinnamon kind of colored park. Um, but you, I would not do it on ume, uh, which has that very nice craggly bark. Uh, but and anything that branches, has a, yeah. a smooth whitish bark is is fair game. That makes all kinds of sense. Now, we talked a lot about deciduous prep. Number four on our list of things to do before a show is evergreen prep. What do we do, Jonas, if we have a conifer, coniferous bonsai? How much time do we have to do the work? And boy, this is uh, if this isn't a good example of what worked of doing your work ahead of time, then I don't know what. And so, one of the main things we want to do is clean up the silhouette, prune whatever we need to prune, and then go for foliar density. And I know some species really shine when we get the density proper. Trees don't happen to typically grow the right number of needles in the right places from top to bottom yeah it is a rare conifer that is going to give us dense low branches and sparse upper branches yeah wouldn't it be nice if we did yeah that would be handy um and it's unlike decandling when we're making uh an imbalance to create balance uh we're plucking more needles in some areas leaving more needles in some areas this is what a very thorough kind of plucking yeah, and so specifically for, and so this would be for something like a pine as opposed to something like a, a spruce. I would not do this, I would not pluck individual <laughs> That's spruce insane. needles. That would be a little crazy. As a spruce, come on. Yeah. It's going to make little injuries. You just don't want to do that. But when I learned this, actually doing show prep for uh, an event in Japan, it was, there was one key lesson I learned is I did what I normally would do for show prep, and I was told, to do a little bit more and then oh, a little bit more was that and then a little bit more and what i kind of found out was it's not that i was lacking any techniques or any tricks it's that force yourself to take it to a higher level of quality 
And I found that by instead of spending 10-15 minutes plucking needles just for balancing density on a medium-sized tree, if you spend two, three hours pulling needles and stepping back and looking at what's dense, the trees just become beautiful because you start seeing needles that are at, um, they're all at the same angle. You get the angles right. You get the density right. As soon as one area is heavier than another, you notice that it looks lopsided and the basic flaws that you get more density up high, less down low. And it just makes it look like you're not a good caretaker of that species since they naturally grow so imbalanced. But boy, when you can get that density right, they just, they sing. Yeah, that's neat. How, How would this look on a juniper? On a juniper, that might be plucking out some of those old, long, elongated needles kind of at the base, right? The lowest uh, green growth coming out of a branch. If you have areas that are really dense and areas that are more sparse, you want to go for a little bit more balance. So pulling out some of those old needles is a great way to do it. Um, That's really the main thing for the junipers is that foliage. The rest would be arranging branches if there happens to be wire on the tree. But the main thing is plucking that density and then um, you know, arranging the pads or doing selective pruning to get that density you're looking for. Anything else we do on our conifers for, for show? We prep? tend to keep the bottoms. If there are branch pads, we tend to keep the bottoms of the pads um, clean. We try to make sure we have a good view of the trunk. If it's a species where we care about seeing twisting movement on a juniper, if we care about the bark on one of our, you know, mountain pines or, you know, what else might we have? Um, or in for Hinoki to make sure if you get really picky, the angles at which the fans of foliage appear on Hinoki branches by trying to aim for slightly higher consistency of the angles of those little fans. Again, it can make the tree look really spectacular. Neat. Uh, this kind of leads into number five on our list, which is detail wiring or show wiring. What's show wiring look like on a conifer? We, we, That's a we good already... question for a deciduous guy because you're like, <laughs> what, what do you mean wiring for a show? Yeah, I have no idea what that means. I, I've, I've done that work in the past. <laughs> so what's it look like on a conifer? Well, it takes a bunch of different forms. Um, let's say we have a conifer and we're putting on copper wire and that copper wire is super bright. We have ways of making that wire not be bright. Hmm, say more. Lime sulfur. Yeah. And lime sulfur will instantly turn it dark. And so I've seen people with larger sizes of copper, which you typically don't see a lot of on show trees, just painting it with lime sulfur will turn it black instantly and it can completely disappear depending on how well it's applied, whether or not it's hidden, and uh, it can make that wire disappear. You know, my teacher, Michael Hegedorn, taught me a trick and there's there's a follow-up that's very important if you're <laughs> going to do this. You spray the tree with lime sulfur, uh, but the thing is you have to wash, spray water afterwards. The so you li- don't leave that white residue. That's right. Yep. That lime sulfur only needs to be on that wire for, I think it's like 30 seconds. It's something. very, very brief. Right. And then you, you clean it off afterwards. And that's enough to, to, to turn it dark. That is. I've seen people try to do it ahead of time, but I don't want all that junk on my hands and it still yeah. pops off and you have to do it later. But more importantly is... When I think of show wiring, I immediately jump into my head some of the big rules. Make sure there are no wires on the trunk. Ideally, yeah. not even a single cross. If there's wires, they should be ideally completely invisible from the front. Yeah. And um, in terms of how we train our trees, I find that in general, I use much finer gauge for show wiring than I ever would for just basic training. That's right. I don't run the wires out to the tips and I'm just going to grab just enough of that branch so I have control of where I put it. And when I might do that is when 
Say I've got a branch pad that looks normally fine, but there's a couple things out of place and cutting it would make it look awkward, unbalanced, or thin. Some very fine wire can be great for just rotating a piece of foliage, filling in a gap, or lining something up so it lines up elsewhere. Yeah, and that, you know, that reminds me when we're, we do do show wiring for deciduous, but it might take place a cycle before the show so that we have time to take that wire off. And so if I need to do any wiring, if a branch is out of place, I need to do that six months, four months ahead of time. Uh, I know Dennis did this with his Hawthorne uh, before the last national show. He wired the tree in the spring. He let that wire set. He took it off in the fall and then he sent it to the show. Uh, terrifying procedure because you got to get that wire off when the time comes but you got to check that weekly yeah if not daily if Uh, not daily because if it's going to be a show tree and you care about how that's going to look you need to do it really carefully uh, i've also found myself finding that maybe all of the branches look good but a couple are in the wrong place and the last thing i want to do is throw on you know number 10 gauge copper to bend this whole branch down and that's when I found I can use tiny little like number 22 copper and run a maybe a one to two inch guy wire between two inch, two branches in the back and you can move something down and that way you're not winding the entire length of the branch with really heavy wire. You're just pulling something. I would never train a tree that way, but if I need it to look good for the photograph and to look good on the stand, you can move those things up and down in very unobtrusive ways. So in short, the whole point of show wiring is Ideally, you're not doing it. If you are doing it, you're making it invisible. If it's visible, you're spraying it so it turns black. In yeah. other words, the bottom line is we're not, you're not showing up to the beauty show in braces. That's right. Yeah. Uh, going to number six on our list of things to do before an exhibit. And that's now that we've done all these things, we've, we've cleaned the deadwood, we've cleaned the trunk, we've done our show prep. Now it's time to clean the surface. Yeah, and this is when I start lurking around parking lots, golf courses, getting getting in trouble in by, the road. Yeah, by scooping up moss off people looking out their lots. windows, and yeah, yeah. this is uh, what's typically, especially in regional or national shows, is uh, mossing the surface of the soil. And uh, where do you find your moss? I find it anywhere in my yard <laughs> moss in, in your yard is, is gravel you don't yeah. find it anywhere so you can't find it on the ground anymore because it's all gravel so where in your garden would you find it? i just walk out to the driveway and get it off the driveway it's 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 everywhere in portland if if i didn't shower i'd have moss growing on my arms it's, it's so you have clients that live in places much warmer and drier than portland where do you tell them to find moss i do my my clients in texas we, we go into the woods and if you find a creek there's woods bed, in texas there's woods in texas if you find them and you you find a little creek bed or something you oftentimes find moss growing against that um and so wherever you find it typically as, as you know you you find a spot to get really nice moss and oftentimes that's a reliable source that you can so go literally back to. have to leave town drive out of the city limits find a forest and then find a creek that has water in it and then uh, my clients in san antonio they they have a uh a, this little like big big huge nature park in the city and it's so, right in the middle of the city it's actually yeah, fantastic yeah. riverwalk's great but uh but yeah, it's you find a spot to get some nice lush moss and, and spend a few hours getting the surface. So prepped. that's really hard here because we don't get rain typically from May through September. Like yeah. typically zero inches of rain that whole time. So what do you do? Because every show I see in California has moss trees. And that's where we get back to where are there sunny, irrigated locations 
And these days, it's really hard to find irrigated locations. Um, that's just kind of disappeared in the last few years yeah. of drought. And so I would say lawns that are overwatered might have mossy stretches. People, it's just really, it's really people who overwater their gardens. That's the only place yeah. I can find moss. It doesn't grow out in nature. I can't find it out in the woods. Like, no, there's just no moss. Do you cultivate it in the garden at all? Do you have yes. an Anderson flat or anything like that? So interestingly, the first... 20 years I was in bonsai, I couldn't successfully grow moss. And I tried it many ways. Now moss is just showing up on all my trees. Good. Yeah. So how's that happening? When I use the white sphagnum moss on the surface of the soil, if I'm overhead watering my trees enough and just maintaining enough general humidity around there, even if it's not soaking into the soil, I find that moss just appears even if I don't seed it with uh, dead moss. You can always use dead dried up moss and crumble it into or over a mixture of sphagnum moss, but I find with just watering, the stuff's in the air. Um, Now, as you know, we just had a heat wave a couple days over 100 degrees, and I'll say over over half of the moss in my garden died. Oh, bummer. Like just gone. And so I really don't know where I'm going to be getting moss for the expo this fall because I just my normal go to spots I check in once in a while and they're all they're all gone. You know something else I do for show prep in regards to collecting moss is um, I have moss on every single tree, every single pot in the garden, and so if one pot has particularly nice moss, uh, then I sacrifice that moss for the tree. Oh, that's that's the first thing I do by far. So if you can find it on a a, a non-show tree, then that's an easy source. How do you figure out which color moss makes the most sense for a given tree? Because down here, we have tons of different colors of moss that people commonly use. Yeah. uh, Silver moss, flat green, fluffy green, climbing green, uh, large leaf, small leaf. We have a lot of different mosses around here. Yeah, I don't read into it too much. Um, I have different mosses in the garden that I like a little bit more. And when I have something, I I don't like a huge variety of moss. Uh, I I have a few mosses that I think work really well for bonsai. They're nice and tight. They don't climb up the trunk. Uh, They have a a dark green, but not a real fluorescent green. You guys seem to have much more consistent moss than we have. Because I've been to a lot of shows where every other dollop is a completely different color or two-thirds of the pot is one color and another third is another color because it's hard to necessarily find yeah. an unlimited amount of any given color of moss. That's been a challenge forever. And so we actually have a lot of techniques for if you have to mix mosses, how you do that and make it look less distracting. Yeah, and, and it's interesting with moss too because you can often tell based on the way someone mosses a tree if they've done a lot of study with a professional, which professional they, they study with based on how they moss. Such different techniques. Yeah. But, uh, do you put moss under the moss? Like, do you put a little shredded sphagnum on the surface of the soil before you lay down dollops of moss, or do you lay the moss directly onto the soil that was there? You know, typically with my trees, because I have such lush moss on them already, I'm mostly doing patchwork. Um, and so I'm able to just remove the moss that I find unfavorable or, or patches where fertilizer was or whatnot and just place it directly on. But if I was mossing a tree from scratch and it, it didn't have any live moss That's on it. That's what most of us have to do. Yeah, then I would put a little sphagnum. Underneath. Do you keep the moss even with the top of the lip of the pot or do you put it up a little higher if you're doing it from scratch? Um, sometimes a little higher. The way I like to pot my trees, if at all possible, is maybe just a quarter inch below the lip of the pot. Uh, and so when the moss grows, it's kind of even with the lip of the pot. Yeah, I've noticed, especially in Japan, you can see radical variation in how they do it. Some people have it really lumpy and they have all the antennas on there. Some people have it clean and quiet and smooth right below the, or at the lip. 
very, very different approaches. Yeah, the way my teacher Michael taught me and how Shinji Suzuki taught him was he didn't like to see the little pillows. He liked to see a very even surface. And so we'd be making, you know, you're using, you're playing Tetris, right? You're getting these one inch by one inch pieces. You're putting them on. Uh, and then you go back with, with moss and a tweezer and you're spending hours putting the moss in between the patches to make it look like it's one uniform piece. Yeah, Moss 101 was something that in general, 80 to 90% of uh, bale and bonsai members failed the first time or the first 10 times through. Because Boone was having us, we had to get the color right. We had to get the size of the dollops right. We had to get the angles at which the moss was coming out because moss is very directional. And if there were antennas, we'd have to get that right. Do you ever use lichen? Do you Um, ever apply it? I do on conifers. Uh, I think it makes more sense on a conifer than a deciduous. And uh, if you have too much lichen, do you ever clean off the lichen when it's on trunks or branches? I don't. I actually really, uh, to me, lichen conveys a really nice sense of age. Um, and so I don't see too many trees that have too much. Have, have you run into that? Yeah, there's a rooftop garden a friend of mine has in San Francisco. And I can't tell you what color the bark of his cedar is because it's solid lichen. And it'll regrow wow. within a year. I mean, you, it's just completely covered every surface of every branch. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So it'll never develop bark. It'll never have anything. And it just looks like an alien. Yeah, that's that's not favorable. Because it's in the fog. And yeah. so the stuff just grows like crazy yeah. year round. So. so so you and I really like doing moss. Whenever possible, we, we always exhibit trees with We've moss. We've got a lot of moss just in our gardens in general. Yeah, we're, we're moss people. But uh, for shows. If, if you're in Arizona or something and you have a bonsai show, are there alternatives if, if you can't use moss? Well, for people that don't have it available or for whatever reason... There are definitely some things to keep in mind. I And here's where personal bias comes into it. I've seen nothing where it's just raw bonsai soil. I've seen 100% akadama. I've seen mixes of akadama and lava. I've seen solid lava. Um, what I like are whatever's quietest, whatever's the least distracting. And that would mean fewer colors, less jarring colors, and more earth tones rather than more artificial colors yeah the and smaller grain size too smaller grain is a little important. finer yeah yeah so 100 percent akadama i like the black lava too mm-hmm. if if i didn't have moss but yeah but again you and i have a very strong bias we're very pro moss well the other thing is i remember in that you know those decades when i couldn't get moss to grow in my backyard i would often do top dressings and so i would use a mix of say the the purple lava with akadama and no pumice on the top because as it kind of broke down it made a nice top dressing it still had water to percolate through and it looked nice and consistent so if i couldn't have moss and that's why i had so much practice doing that because for so many years moss just wasn't an option probably because i was working day jobs and i wasn't able to water the trees all day long yeah yeah that's my guess for that but Mossing is a lot of fun and it really does take a lot of practice to get it right and in our bias opinion it just looks better now do you remember where the tradition comes from for putting moss on I don't. the surface Tell of the me. soil and i won't say that i know this is true but it had to do with when we bring things from outside they are dirt is dirty and we don't do dirty indoors and so when bringing something mm. like a tree into the tokonoma the moss was just to cover the dirt because moss is cleaner than dirty and so it really became a thing when displaying bonsai indoors. And to this day at Japan, pretty much indoor bonsai events, surface to surface, will be covered in moss. Outdoor bonsai events, not necessarily going to be mossed. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I I wonder in Japan a lot of them at least it, I know my my teacher's garden uh, or my teacher's teacher's garden Shinji the trees have moss year round anyway. And interestingly, I've never had a straight answer from anyone who studied at Shinji's garden. The moss grows up onto the trunk and starts eroding the bark on almost every tree in the garden and I've never seen that in another garden in Japan. And they always just tell me, no, it's not a problem. That's literally the party line of like the four apprentices I've asked that to. The Japanese ones, the American ones, even Shinji, we asked him about that. We're like, you do know that moss is like three inches up? And they're like, no, it's not. We're like, okay. Must not be a problem. It's a very pretty garden. (laughs) It's my favorite garden on earth, which is why we're like, let's see. Everyone, including you guys, told us not to do that. And why are you doing that? And they literally just looked at us and said, we're not doing it. And we just said, okay. (laughs) And we just kind of left it at that. Well, the enigma. Clearly, the the weather was conducive to moss growth there. Yeah. Super cracked me up. So we've we've cleaned the deadwood. We've cleaned the trunk. We've done our prep. We've done our show wiring. We've we've now prep the surface it has a nice lush covering the controversial step now now we come to the last item on our list of things to do for and it's the last thing a pro wrestler does before walking on stage and that is the baby oil the baby oil (laughs) hopefully not baby oil please do not use baby oil yeah but it's cleaning your pot your stand and, and and getting all the dirt the dust off and 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 getting it ready for the exhibit so give us a few guidelines for what to keep in mind as we clean the containers for our trees yeah so, there's a lot of ways this can go sideways so we typically we oil our pots typically what kind of um, oil i actually don't think there's a huge difference i know some people think there's a big difference for me it's more in <laughs> how you apply the oil rather than what type of oil that you use. You haven't seen baby oil on bonsai pots. Okay, I haven't seen baby or oil. mineral oils or, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of ways. But if you're just sideways. using olive oil, canola oil, if you get your camellia oil that you use on your tools. In other words, if you're using a vegetable oil that doesn't have a strong scent and yeah. doesn't get gloopy or funky and rancid. And that's why the oils can definitely matter. Because I've seen these all go wrong. It's like... Yeah. They can get gunky. They can grab the fibers of the cloths and stick to it, and it just becomes these sticky messes. Yeah. Um, the the f- more refined vegetable oils do such a better job. Yeah, so just take your olive oil out of your fridge, your canola oil. Yeah, the classic is walnut oil. Walnut works great. Because camellia oil is really hard to find around here. Yeah, um, so you, take take your oil. Um, the thing that I like, don't like to do, you want to do a thorough job applying it, but you want to use as little as possible to apply it over as the absolutely pot. as little as possible you're going to put a teeny tiny amount on that ideally as close to lint-free cloth as possible yeah. and you're going to see how far you can smudge it around and then you're going to repeat that process because if you put too much on it's very very hard to sop it up it's just going to be too wet that's right and so we apply it so our pot is not shiny but it gives a, a cleaner appearance. And then we rub off all excess after applying the oil. So even if you are applying it generally, let it soak in a little dry a bit and let it do that. Now, I will often oil pots. I should say, I know that I should be oiling my pots a couple of days in advance and then doing touch-up the morning of the show. Because when you handle it, it gets dirty, you get thumbprints on it. Your That's hands right. aren't always clean handling bonsai. So I like it, having the base layer in there and then I just do a little bit of touch-up. And it's something any experience exhibitor brings to the show oh so that goodness. they can do it there and do those touch-ups at the exhibit. Yeah, we always had crust socks with walnuts in them because <laughs> it's a handle, it's a handy portable object that you don't need a separate bottle like it's a self-contained thing which was great um what are some other tips are there any pots we don't want to oil um i oil almost 
all the pots including your antique chinese uh, non-bond because very few people i know um, oil those things i don't do it on non-bonds but i do do it on antique chinese pots so it depends on the clay is what we're getting at if you have that baby smooth clay oil it if you have those really rough textured things you can lose a lot of character when you oil those some people do it anyway but it's far less common to oil some of those really old pots with very rough textured clay bodies yeah, um, but we also apply oil very similarly to the stand. Um, you don't want to just dump a bunch of oil on and smear it around. We don't want a really high gloss kind of appearance. It's it's doing that less is more approach to get it thorough but not shiny. And we didn't even talk about it. how do you clean your pot before you oil? Cause oil because most pots don't happen to be clean enough to oil right off the bench. A lot of people get, whether it's fungus growing on there, algae growing on there, or just caked on dirt from, you know, fertilizing all year long. Yeah, you know, I, I have just standard garden maintenance for me is doing cleaning of the pots fairly regularly. I actually oil you my... You do. I, I oil my pots about twice a year. Why do you Every do single pot in the garden. Uh, the oil, um, the rumor is that the oil actually assists in the patina buildup. Um, the oil gives a surface for that dirt or grime or those organic residues mm-hmm. to, you know, leach and, and absorb into the, the, the pores of, of the ceramic. Plus, it looks the yard looks fantastic with a bunch of oiled pots. Exactly. And the number one tip I can give anyone, if you have an inexpensive unglazed pot, if you oil it, it will look like an expensive pot. It'll look so much better. And so if you do have a fairly dirty pot, you need to scrub it. How do you know how much to scrub? Because I've seen some antique pots come out just spanking clean and brand new looking. And yeah. does, that, does that mean I'm doing it right? If you're using a brush, you're doing it wrong. Uh, the way I like to, to, to clean pots, and again, I don't clean them too much because I do fairly regularly oil them in the garden. That keeps them in a pristine condition. Um, but the way I do is I just get a wet rag. And, so and- I need to use brushes constantly. And scrub really hard. And then we have all of our friends in in the South Bay or Southern California where the salts and the water leach out and we have huge calcium buildups. So we get dirt and patina and calcium very commonly all the time. Yeah, I guess if you're not able to treat your water and and get those those minerals out. Very few people can do that because it's just in the tap water. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 a good... That's 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 straight up reverse osmosis. Right, and that's how... That's why one of my clients down in LA has an RO system and he doesn't Mm -hmm. have those problems at all to begin with, which I highly recommend. But if you do have those problems, yeah, uh, those... The the, the cream mate (laughs) that you sell um, is is a good tool, isn't it? Yeah, those can be a start. And so the main trick is... Everything's fair game to remove except for the patina. And where it gets really hard is when you have the calcium deposits mixed in with the patina. And honestly, it's a balancing act. It's hard. You want all the dirt to come off, and I will use natural bristle brushes all the time. And it's good at taking away the dirt but not taking away the patina. Yeah. And that's that's the big trick. Yeah, that, that sounds violent to me. But uh, I, I, you I have think if, clearly if, not dealt with the dirty pots I've dealt with. Yeah, I like think, I've scraped the mud off with plastic, and then you have to soak it, and then you have to use a brush. There's still patina under all that. Interesting. Yeah, Andrew doesn't believe a word I'm saying right now. Yeah, he lives in this magical world where all the pots are brand new or clean, or they were purchased from people who kept them clean. I guess I don't know. Well, the, the oiling is actually a good tool to reduce if you, those, if if you, do you it start. With a clean pot, yeah. but yeah. I, I, I'm I'm a big advocate, and if you're getting calcium deposits, you probably have to adjust your water. 
Yeah, and uh, just not everyone can afford to do that. And the other thing is there's a lot of great pots out there that have deposits in it for whatever reason. Yeah. Because, I mean, not 1% of people are treating are, are doing RO water right now. That's yeah. just, that's hard. And so I buy pots all the time that have all kinds of crazy calcium in there. I try to not buy them if they have too much of that in there. But if it's a really beautiful pot, it's a trade-off. A lot of the imported pots from Japan will even have calcium deposits on them. Yeah. Chinese antiques, Japanese antiques, a lot of old stuff. So whatever method you have to do to clean it but not take off that patina. That's right. Get rid of the dirt but not the patina. And that's why... If you're not scratching the pot or removing the patina, I don't know of a reason not to be more aggressive with that. But again, I use a natural bristled brush, and so I don't know how that can be vigorous or violent. Like yeah. it's they're made for cleaning carrots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My teacher Michael always taught me a wet rag. So I'd say start there if that works for you. Great. If not, then pull pull out the big guns. Yeah, I, I yeah, that's fascinating. I can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, if all your pots start clean, that's totally fine. Yeah. I just have known. And, you know, there's actually a fungus around here that grows and it kind of, the water splashing on tables kind of, it looks like when you use a weed whipper in your lawn and that little green stuff that's growing is actually a fungus. And that's actually really common. That needs to be brushed fairly thoroughly. And you really don't want that stuff you on You live your in pots. a different planet than I do. There's a lot to... of different planets around the country, I yeah. tell you. But I've seen this in different parts of the country. And for a while, I swore it looked like long clippings. But it's this, uh, it's algae or fungus or something that grows on the pots. And it's very, it just, it takes work. It takes elbow grease to get rid of that stuff. Yeah. So before you oil the pot, give it a good cleaning. Yeah, get it clean, keep that patina, build it up, do whatever voodoo you need to to get it there. I know people that bury their pots after oiling them. Yeah. I hope I'm not giving away big secrets here. No, no, no. But yeah, um, one of the guys I buy pot for, pots from in Japan, he makes pots. I think he buries oils and buries them all. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've heard people burying pots to try and build patina. I did that with a Roy Minerai pot. Oh. Um, I, it was brand new. It was very glossy. Uh, I buried it in compost for two years, and I pulled out of the dirt, and it was still very Bright glossy. and shiny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I found that the glossiest glazed pots, until they age and weather enough yeah. to where you have those microabrasions on it, it's just really hard to get it's any tough. patina to form on those shiny, shiny pots. Yeah, That's why I like those kind of matte glazes because they're going to take on age so much faster yeah now so, what do you do when you have an antique chinese pot that's turned solid black yeah i i have you see those more and more these days yeah um are you talking glazed or unglazed glazed yeah i so shirokochi the the cream pots are the ones that are notorious for this um i like it um it to me it 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 changes the feeling of the pot rather than a cream it's it's it can almost have an unglazed kind of characteristic, which gets fun. You can kind of play with maybe using them with some softer conifers, which they did in older Coke Fu shows like uh, Hanoki, Cryptomeria, uh, even White Pines, things like that. Uh, but I, I really, really like that. It, it takes it from a, a white, which is kind of a human-ish color, to something that's more earth tone. Well, so as long as you can see some of the color, I'm talking when plat pots are actually black. Yeah, I just don't buy that pot. Well, then that's why I'm wondering, what do you do when... Because someone's going to come to us with one of those pots, you know, and what do you tell them? Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. I don't don't know. um, I know ideally you would brush away enough of it so you can see at least what is being suggested underneath. 
But often what happens is a single scratch goes all the way through to the beginning and it's like start from scratch or not. Do you, so, do you see a lot of those? I've, I've been collecting I've antique more pots lately. for the last five, six years and I haven't run into one that looked like that. Well, then we'll have to look closer. I have a pot in the garden that I had for years with a tree in it and I didn't know it was glazed until I repotted the tree and put it in another pot. Interesting. It was a glazed pot. It is a blue pot that a conifer had been in for years that has such a thorough, thick patina in it. It ended up a beautiful, natural gray. But I've seen um, older Chinese antique pots that are just, they're just not attractive. They're just like flat black. It's like the color of our microphones we're holding right now. That's crazy. I it have is. maybe a dozen or two antiques in the garden, and I've never run into that issue. But I, I'm going to start looking now. Um, they're out there. And so I think the reason I've seen more is more people are bringing in antiques that aren't necessarily picky about what they buy, or they're just bringing in such big quantities of pots. Who knows what gets thrown into that batch? And I'm sure the ones that they want to sell aren't the nice ones. They're the exactly. ones that are weird shapes, which is why we see so many of the narrow ones. Um, the ones I don't buy these. Are, I don't recommend yeah. buying the dark ones, but a couple yeah. people have brought them to me. And what when it'll, the giveaway is there'll be a scratch on it and you'll see this disco bright color underneath. And I always yeah. think, what in the world? And then you realize, ah, it's not an unglazed pot. I really like when the cream, uh, the shirokochis get uh, almost completely covered. They turn this like almost olive green. Well, as, when there's color. still that light color, it's fine. But I've seen more and more black ones. Wow. And I think part of it is a lot of these... A lot of what we think of as patina is fake patina. Yeah. And they've been doing that in Japan for a very long time. People do it here. There are various family recipes. I, I'd share them if I had any. But I think more and more people are using these recipes. And I don't know if it's the recipes going bad over time or if they're, they're just whatever the conditions were where these pots lived got them covered. A lot of people use shoe polish. A lot of people will take the graphite stick out of a battery and scrape that on the pot and then use oil to absorb that and i actually think if you had a very new unglazed pot and it, it wouldn't i don't know do you do you, if someone was Make able up again if, if some yeah what do you think about someone applying patina if well done to a pot to make it look older i think well done is the sole key if i'm not gonna guess that you faked this on first or even second glance it's gonna be hard for me to complain about but yeah. there are some brand new pot makers out there that are building the patina into their kind of release yeah. and i usually don't like it when they're built in because you can tell it's built in yeah. when you can't tell it's built in then, yeah, I don't have as strong an opinion about it. It's like, if it's not distracting, I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. Because I don't know. I can't tell. Yeah. So oil oil your pots, oil your stands. And it, it's, it's a nice thing to, to dress them up for the display. And if you go through all of these seven things, if you, you know, clean up the dead wood in the trunks, if you get the foliage and the branches right, you do any wiring if necessary and you happen to have some wire on there, let alone dress the top of the pot and then clean that container and stand, then we're in the ballpark. Now it's time to load up the car, head down to the venue and uh, and hopefully pack the tree really well in the car. And You know, something that's really cool about the Pacific Bonsai Expo or, or shows like that is that when you see those shows uh like our friend eric told us it's first of all it's the only time you're going to see trees from what 40 different places in the same room like you would have to go the amount of time that it would take to go to all those gardens would be insane 
So to see them in one room is one thing, but when even if you went to all those 40 gardens, they're not they don't have all this work that we just described. Yeah, there's at least seven, seven things. things missing from each of those. Exactly. And they're not in front of a beautiful backdrop. They're not accented. They're not, you know, separated from all the other trees in general. Yeah. And so this is going to a show, putting all this effort in. It's, it's providing this really beautiful short window of time where we can see these trees at their best. And what's great is most of this work, very inexpensive to do, very not that time consuming. That's right. It can be meticulous on super big detailed trees, but for the most part, this is not an extraordinary amount of time. And it just makes people like us really love walking around the show because the trees just sing when you get all that right. That's right. And do it, do it, don't do it the day of the show. No. A lot of this should be done a week or two or three or more as we, we stated before. Yeah, some of those techniques. But I see people show up to trees and do a lot of this work at the last minute. And you can do that. It just, it, the odds of it looking as good are about zero. Yeah, yeah. So those are seven ways that you can take your bonsai and prep it for a show. Yeah, let us know if there's anything else that we missed on this list that you do with your trees. Thanks for tuning in and hope to see you at the Pacific Bonsai Expo on November 12th and 13th. Thanks. Cheers. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue.